Hello everyone, welcome back to Birdwatching. I am your host, Randy. This is a podcast about the cultural legacy and impact of The Crow. And today we are starting our coverage on the 1996 comic book offshoot, The Crow, Midnight Legends, subtitled. Um, this has probably set the standard for pretty much every Crow adaptation to follow the original, both comic-wise and film-wise. We've already covered City of Angels, the sequel to the original Crow film, and how it chose to take a different someone to be the Avatar of Vengeance, um, mostly out of necessity, but clearly that was the idea that everyone in the comics industry had in the first place as well, because every single protagonist of a Midnight Legends story arc is a different person in a different situation, sometimes in a different time period as we go further down the line, and this is what every following adaptation has done, except for the last two arcs of Midnight Legends, which we will get to when we get to. James O'Barr returned to the writer's chair for the concept for Dead Time, the first entry into the Midnight Legends series. He'd originally envisioned po- having it as a possible Crow sequel movie pitch somewhere down the line, but it was adapted here into comics instead. Alex Maleev and John Wagner and Kyle Hotz help adapt this into the medium. The gist of the story cuts pretty close to the original in a lot of ways. A Native American man, Joshua, and his partner, who is white, are cut down by a gang of Confederate soldiers in the 1800s, and Joshua gets brought back into the 1990s modern day to pick off the reincarnations of these soldiers to adjust the balance in the universe. This is the first Crow story to really go deep into what it might look like as a reincarnation story. Over a hundred years have passed since the original murder, and the wrongdoers are now your average gang member, lowlife, step soldiers. And they get these flashbacks occasionally of what they did beforehand. Um, It's not an uninteresting concept. I think this is a story that, um, you know, pardon the pun or whatever, is is really got one foot in, in the present, one foot in the past, to no one's benefit. I really wish they had just picked, like, to stay, honestly, to stay in the past. I feel like that would be... A more interesting story to have an 1800s crow um, happening, especially at this point in the series evolution. Um, we never really stick with our um, our time travel guns, if you will, for American crow stories in particular. Most of them are in the present. I don't know why that has to be. The French crow, weirdly, does delve into different times and eras. America is so reluctant to do so for whatever reason. This is not the strongest entry into Midnight Legends, but it's also not my least favorite. I also think that the art does not necessarily serve this story. Um, We wanted to stick to black and white, as has been the precedent set by Crow Comics at this point, but we'll later do away with that. We do get more into color much later on down the line. I'm not sure that this black and white art works for me in particular. I had a really hard time following uh, which panels were going where, which one I was supposed to read first, which, like, I am a seasoned comics reader. This is not normally something I have trouble with. I also think that the uh, the usage of rain in this, again, something that we, we kind of think of as sort of required for a lot of crow stories is rain at this point. 
Uh, the way that the rain is like drawn into the comics makes it really hard to see what is going on. And this is a problem that persists for me through a lot of the Midnight Legends entries. It's not at its worst here, but it is definitely still a problem. There are some interesting ideas at play here, but it's clearly a first step into expanding a world that is coming. The second entry into Midnight Legends is arguably its most popular, it's certainly my favorite, and honestly the one that I think has aged the best, and that is Flesh and Blood. This three-issue run from 1996 uh, has a story by James Vance, art by Alexander Maleev, and was collected in 2012 by IDW. This is the story of Iris Shaw, the first female crow. And thank god. I was so happy when the reboot news hit um, a couple months ago that most of the people who were like asking for something different said, why are we not adapting Flesh and Blood? That's a great question. This story has aged really well, honestly, in my opinion. Um, it feels very prescient to things that we are still dealing with um, even now. And again, it was time for a lady to be the crow. It's just the facts. Flesh and Blood centers on Iris Shaw, a federal conservationist officer working through a grueling land rights conflict out in rural America that has become increasingly contentious, and right-wing fuckheads bomb her home, killing her. What they don't know is that Iris is pregnant. So not only is she avenging her own death, but also the possibility of a life. There's a really heartbreaking conversation where Iris mentions that she wasn't sure if she was going to go through with the pregnancy in a conversation with um, her boyfriend and a uh, for lack of better term, baby daddy. Um, she was robbed of even the choosing by the people who killed her. So not only is she avenging herself, um, but she's not re avenging any romantic partner or uh, family member. It is the possibility of what could have been. Wow, what a quaint problem to be dealing with in the 1990s. Crazy. Seems so far away, huh? Flesh and Blood is certainly not without its flaws, but it's definitely the adaptation at this point that does the most new and does those new things pretty well. It deals with a lot of almost body horror elements of being an undead revenger more so than other adaptations. There's a lot of Iris physically falling apart, the physical toll of the spiritual task. I feel like there's a lot of Frankenstein inspiration and that's honestly not something I've seen visually in a lot of other crow books. I also felt that the relationships that Iris left behind were elaborated on as well as the gang of fuckheads. Like I said, the story's arguably best conversation comes with um, Iris's boyfriend. And we spend a lot of time dealing with the people who did the thing, whether or not they feel sorry. Are they still rooted in their extremism after doing the thing? This is good stuff. I also love the deviations in Iris's makeup look for the crow. Instead of the mime slash clown template, the silhouette of a crow with wings outstretched bridges her face, and it's extremely fucking rad. It is a very, very good makeup concept, and probably one of the only ones outside of the original that really feels like it works for characters that it's portraying, and it's awesome, and I love it. It's also much more cosplayed and copied than any other version besides the original, um, and I think that's awesome too. Like many crow stories, Flesh and Blood does kind of suffer from all the villains being basically the same. It was very hard for me to tell gang members apart, and I wish the art style was a little cleaner. Um, again, the rain in this is driving me crazy. It's, I, I just wish the art was clearer so I could see what was going on in my, in my head and on the page better. 
Um, but besides those bumps, it's honestly my favorite of the series. I adore this book. I hope it gets adapted someday. Easily one of my favorites. Like, I love a big swing. I'll say that a million times over on this podcast. I love it when people just try something new and see what sticks. And I think a lot of stuff here stuck. Speaking of big swings, the next installment, Wild Justice, takes so many of them. And I have to be 100% honest with you, my audience, I do not care for this book. It doesn't feel like a crow comic. It feels extremely fanfiction-like in a lot of terms to me. The themes that have carried through all of the other stories are just not as present or written as well in this particular issue. And so many of the changes made to mythology and storytelling conventions that we use for shorthand in these books is changed to the point of being unrecognizable. Like Dead Time, it also suffers from pulling too close to the original story. Michael and Jan just got married, are in the car leaving from their wedding when a gang waylays them, and murders them both brutally on the road. If you'll harken back to the original comic, this is almost exactly what happens to Eric and Shelley, although they haven't married yet, but that's pretty much the only difference. Michael then returns, and that's about where the similarities on a minute scale end. The literal crows, like the literal birds, are in this book, and they're very talkative to the audience, to the characters, giving story exposition, giving lore stuff and quippy comments. They have a lot of work to do, and I feel like they talk more than any of our characters. And that's just, it's just not what I want in a crow book. It didn't gel with me. Um, I was consistently reminded of the Gargoyles from Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame adaptation because they also follow a Victor Hugo naming convention. Mmm, not for me. We also delve into a sort of Greek mythology adjacent take on the crow. Michael has apparently been resurrected by a consulate-slash-literal thing called the Blood of the Gorgon, which... that's new. And also, once you run out of the blood of the Gorgon, you can't do all your cool death-defying stuff anymore, which, okay. Uh, The makeup has even changed, and this is a hindsight thing, but I was very distracted by how much the tattoos and face makeup on Michael look like the swirly jigsaw makeup from the Saw movies. Which, again, not in the cultural conversation in 1996, but it aged poorly for me, and that's, that's absolutely just a personal issue. Uh, the quippy crows also go make Michael research his own death at the library in a plot point that takes forever. Also, a dead guy researching his own murder is like the least weird thing I can think of seeing in the public library as someone who basically lived and worked in them as a kid. So I thought it was pretty weird that everybody like freaked out when they were like, he's dead. I'm like, mm, okay. Uh, from there, he systemically hunts down the gang as you do. However, the one deviation I am interested in in this book is that it sort of back half of this comic is almost completely devoted to the life of one of the gang members. He spent the last period of time in jail, is released, um, clearly has a support system when he comes out, and maybe just maybe appears to be trying to make a better life for himself. Michael, in his quest for vengeance, is having none of it. But there is a really touching moment right before Michael just absolutely murders this dude that the guy is like, hey, I forgive you for killing me. I probably would have done the same thing at some point, and maybe I deserve it. This is a neat thing to do, and certainly we don't have that happen very often in these books, but it does rearrange the concept I've discussed in a few of these episodes of why the crow hits so hard the way it does, which is of supernaturally perfect revenge, 
where the guilt level in a lot of these stories stays pretty low because it is clearly obvious that the perpetrators of any crimes are not people who are going to better themselves in any way and only seek to make the world worse. This usually only happens in stories. And I'm not sure how much I love this particular brand of nuance in my cool crow book, but it's a bold choice that is carried out admirably. I genuinely think it's the, the new thing that they do the best. There are still some of the problems that happen through all of these Midnight Legends installments. That art style stays pretty not for me. And a lot of the combat scenes in particular are hard to make out. I hate to be a downer about it, but this one just doesn't do it for me. But again, still things to appreciate. Up next, we have Waking Nightmares, which shifts into a good mix of new and old elements and also cleans up the art style, which is fantastic. Uh, Waking Nightmares centers around Mark Leung, an NYPD detective in Chinatown, brought back to avenge an organized crime gang who killed his wife. The sticky wicket here is that Mark's daughters are still alive, and like any decent father, he is extremely concerned about getting them to safety as they have been captured by the gang. But as an undead revenger, any straying from the path of blood and violence to ensure a future for any survivors is a tenuous part of the agreement. When you're a crow, you put the balance back in place with murder. Anything else is ancillary. It doesn't end well for Mark. This is where I want to bring up that between Wild Justice and Waking Nightmares, the graphic novelization of The Crow, City of Angels was released, because these two weirdly share a little bit in common. If you'll recall from the previous episode, City of Angels was originally slated to have the incredibly dark ending where Ash Corbin focuses more on rescuing Sarah than avenging himself and his son, and because Sarah dies before she can be rescued, Ash's mission has failed on both friends, and he is doomed to walk the earth in search of a purpose that he will never find. This ending gets cut from the movie because, um, noted piece of shit Harvey Weinstein, rest in, rest in piss, um, didn't like it and thought it strayed too far from the original movie because he wanted a knockoff of the first one. This was put into the comic adaptation of City of Angels. This original ending exists there the only place you can still see what that might have looked like. A similar ending happens to Mark Leung in Waking Nightmares. Mark too becomes similarly cursed but gradually. Throughout the book, as his focus turns more sharply to rescuing his daughters as opposed to taking out the crime syndicate, our talkative but less quippy crow guide notes that the rigor mortis and other effects of being dead will start to kick in the longer that Mark deviates from the intended journey. Mark also gradually loses his eyesight in the story, sunglasses becoming part of his crow ensemble and his eyes are frequently bleeding to do the sort of mime makeup. It's a good way to fit it into this particular story. I really liked this. The crow guide notes that no one has ever strayed so far from their path. I also like that this continues the body horror theme that started in Flesh and Blood and a little bit in the original novel as well. Ultimately, Mark does not kill his intended target and is doomed to wander, never to see his wife again. It's a deeply sad ending. We see his wife kind of comforting the daughters as a ghost several times throughout the story. And it's it's a bummer ending. It's not as cathartic as you might expect from one of these stories to be. But I still adore this comic. The art style is great. It reminds me a little bit of Hellboy and a little bit of the Batman animated series that I would later go on to love. It feels very clean and sharp in comparison to previous entries, and it's a very, like, snowy, wintry story, and there's this great gray shading that really brings in that chilly sense of atmosphere that I really, really enjoyed. I also like that the criminals here are organized, like, 
professional criminals, which is a good change up from the ragtag teams of brainless for the most part crews that have been the focus almost exclusively up until now in these books. Waking Nightmares is definitely my second favorite after Flesh and Blood in the series. I really, really enjoy it, and it's definitely worth checking out. The last two installments in Midnight Legends are ten issues of a retelling of the original Crow book. The first entitled Resurrection, and the second is Touch of Evil. A choice was made. There are some good things in here. The problem for me is that why are we redoing the original? Um, this is a thing that you will probably hear a lot on this podcast. And I'm not even saying it's always a bad idea. This was not great. Um, there's this thing that I really dislike in media when uh, someone decides to remake or re-examine something that, uh, wasn't super, uh, laid out in terms of mythology and lore. The details could be fuzzy because maybe the original piece of media was going for something more, uh, emotional or immediate than something with a lot of exposition and a lot of details and a lot of uh, sticky wickets to get lost in, if you will. These two volumes of Midnight Legends kind of do that thing for me where there is such an emotional immediacy to the original Crow story. And by giving so many more details to uh, thugs that inevitably die, to situations that we can infer are bad just from the way that characters talk and interact with each other. I, I don't love it. I, I don't love it. That being said, there is some beautiful art in these two volumes. And I will definitely say, if you're looking for a more, like, in line with the movie adaptation of the first book, this does delve into that a little bit more. Um, it, it definitely took more influence from the film than the original book, but it's undeniable that it's both of them. I, retelling the original, I don't know. It doesn't fill any void that needed to be, in my opinion. Uh, there is a shot that I really like from it, though. I say a shot. It's like a panel of a bullet going through an apple that I really, really like. And I was like, oh, this is neat. And there's some things that I'm fine with knowing more about. But I also, I have to remember this, that at the time, the author's edition of The Crow that was released in, like, 2011, I'm probably getting that date wrong off the top of my head, but that wasn't out yet. So it felt like a lot of things that were more fleshed out in the original book that we kind of have now as the standard edition uh, were not available yet. So I do get that. Either way, I like these two. It's interesting to get another perspective on... Um, James O. Barr's The Crow as opposed to everybody else's The Crow. (laughs) Uh, It was a choice. This concludes our run on Midnight Legends. I wrote and rewrote this episode quite a few times. I felt like it was too scattershot to be ready to go. I was trying desperately to find more research than a few Goodreads reviews and my own opinions, and there's not a whole lot out there to go off of. Which is a shame. 
I think the thing I appreciate most about this particular era of the Crow in comics was the willingness to experiment with different art styles and characters and motivations and all the different ways to tell this very old story in some new fashion. Do they all work? No, but that's okay. They help to find the mythos and hallmarks of the Crow for the future, and I can still see their impact even in the newest iterations of this comic that we'll be covering down the line. There's a really awesome panel in Tim Seeley's Hack Slash The Crow crossover. Again, we'll get there. That places every avatar of the crow together for a brief second at the bottom of a page. And it honestly made me so happy to see everyone together, however popular or not, have a place in this history and bring their different stories and aesthetics along with them. Midnight Legends set the precedent for what was to come, and I'm going to be forever thankful for that. I also want to mention that this episode would not have been possible without my local library, which had a few very well-loved volumes of Midnight Legends around for me to check out, and I'm sure they're very concerned with how many times I've borrowed them over the past couple months. Maybe the circulation numbers are up enough now to where they'll buy the rest of the collection. As always, I have been your host, Randy. All of the music you heard in this episode was composed and performed by me. I'm so sorry. And I want to give a special thanks to my friends in the Snake Cult for all their encouragement over the last few weeks. You guys are the best. Blood Pact. Until next time.